0: Please turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 16. We are back in the series on David. Uh, David and the warrior poet is the name of our series. or um, David the warrior poet. It's been a few weeks and we are coming into our final three sermons about David's life. And maybe for many of you this is the part of his life. Let's see, there it is. Uh, the part of his life that may not um, stick out, there, uh, the, the events t- toward the end of his life may not have the, the same technicolored you know, children's storybook feel for you. But let me assure you of this, David, in his waning years, I think reflects what it looks like to mature well, to mature in Christ well. And This morning we're going to talk about probably my most creative sermon title ever, Handling Criticism. took a lot of thought and creativity. But that's what we're talking about. So I went simple. Uh, And I want to just kind of let you know where David's been and where where we're going to go this morning. Um, The last three sermons we had with David dealt with his sin. So just to recap, David was anointed. He came out of obscurity and right away was thrust into the public um, life of Israel by slaying Goliath, if you'll remember that. So he started his entire political career as a warrior a man who fought. And it wasn't long before the song was sung, Saul has killed his thousands, David is tens of thousands. So David comes on with just acclaim, and he's strong, and he fights. And then he becomes so successful, Saul wants to get rid of him, so David flees. And we spent some time looking at David in the the, um, wilderness years as he's running from Saul, but even in those years, he has a band of warriors, the mighty men, and he's fighting for money often or for, or, or for survival, for provision. Saul eventually dies, and David becomes the king first of Judah, then of all of the tribes of Israel. And he comes in, and he flourishes for a short time, at least in the Scriptures. Uh, the, the number of years isn't told, but not for very many. He comes in, and he brings the ark into Jerusalem, establishes the city um, he, remember, he blesses Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan, Saul's son. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. And so he, he's doing very well, and he's longing to rest. He's longing to stop being a king who goes out to battle, but he does it wrongly. Remember, when he should have gone out to battle, he stayed home, and that's when he was tempted and had his sin with Bathsheba, okay? Okay. And then we remember, uh, he kills Uriah to cover it up. And he's just going to continue on his way. And Nathan comes in, the prophet, and tells him, you're the man. And so he has to confront his own sin. And one of the, follow, one of the uh, curses from that was not only a child dying, but it was the promise that he would never know during his lifetime, peace. That's the story of David. And it comes to this week. Uh, probably one of the greatest tragedies in his life is his own son, Absalom, has conspired to take David out. What happened there, just as a recap, um, David has another son, Amnon, who, um, and, a half, and then his half-sister, Tamar. He rapes Tamar, and Absalom avenges that, that uh, rape by killing the son, and at that point, he becomes an outsider to the kingdom, And through, if you can read it for yourself, but through quite a few twists and turns, Absalom gains quite a following. He's in chapter 14; it tells us he's the the most handsome man in all of Israel. He would actually set up at the gate and wait for people to bring their their cases to David or to somebody, and he would intercede on David's behalf and say he has no time for you. And he would begin to help people, and he gained a following. So he's more of a schmoozer. He was political. Uh, And I think people were starting to like that. They were starting to want a leader who wasn't necessarily bloodthirsty like David. And it didn't take long for David to have to actually flee Jerusalem to get away from this insurrection. And that's where our story finds us. There's these few verses right in the middle of this Absalom conspiracy that I think in a way serve as a way to examine the Absalom conspiracy, but also to just look at this interesting way that David handles criticism. That's where we are. Are you ready to learn how to handle criticism? Okay, let's put the passage up, chapter 16, starting in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out, of, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and that all the servants of the king, David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. For you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, 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 anyway, something like that, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David? Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with, the good, for his, with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, While Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we often would have taken Abishai's idea and said, go for it. We hate being criticized. And I pray that as we look at this passage, we will see in it a reflection of where we could go in the gospel of finding our identity in you, Lord, and not in what other people think of us, amen. Sequoia Middle School, on Danforth and Edmond, when I went there, Emily and I went there, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, Uh, I would ride a school bus, and you would come into like this, it's like a cement pit, which just feels cruel, even as I thought about it recently. It's like this pit, it's just cement, concrete. You walk in, and you just stand. That's what you did until the bell rang, if you were a bus rider. I always envied the people being dropped off by their parents. I was a bus rider. and It was around that time where you were supposed to peg your jean legs up. I did that. And I'll never forget Brandon Bain, sixth grade, came up to me and said, hey, Ryan, flood over yet? Is the flood over yet? What are you talking, what? Why are your pant legs up so high?" <laughs> and they all laughed at me, like three or four people. I remember that very, very well. I think all of you remember those kind of moments. In fact, if you think about your story, it's really populated with criticisms, right? It's, it's, it's full of these moments where people have come to you and tried to harm you and say things to you and criticize you. And often their goal is to name you, to tell you about yourself, to rewrite your story. And for most of us, I think the typical response is one of several things, either immediate reply, retort, or inner seething. But very rarely, I think, do we handle it the way David does in this passage right? I became very, very good at using my, my tongue to protect myself. I've been, I've been very good at that. You can, very hard to get to me where I can't get back at you. Some of you have that same skill slash horrible uh, quality, but I have that and I'm working on that. What is your way of handling criticism? What does your heart do when it comes at you? For David, we see that he's able in this story To withstand horrible cursing in front of his his new tribe, like his new army, he's raised to fight his son, this horrible low of his of his life, but he can handle the cursing. Can you? So this morning we're going to explore how the gospel, understanding the gospel, makes you able to handle criticism. Three things we're going to look at: Uh, the gospel puts the critic into perspective. The gospel helps you find the kernel of truth in the criticism. And finally, the gospel helps you have hope for deliverance. Those are the three things we'll look at. So starting with the gospel puts the critic into perspective. Uh, Just to remind you of what's happening in this story. Um, David is fleeing Jerusalem, but he's not scared. I'm going to make an interpretive slant here. If you read through it, it almost reads in chapter 15 like he's fleeing out of fear. I don't think so. In fact, for David, to leave Jerusalem is to, is to ready himself for battle. David would go out to battle and fight in the open areas. The last thing he would want is for any insurrection to come into the city where women and children were. So he left, he left the city to those people. Even his own home was left to the concubines to take care of. And he goes out and he gathers to himself the mighty men. And he's gathering himself for war. But the heartbreak is it's against his son. So the entire story about Absalom is this tearing of David kind of rekindling the warrior in himself while at the same time realizing it's going to lead to a very bad end for his own son. Uh, The the movie The Patriot is what I kind of thought of uh, where Mel Gibson plays an old soldier who does everything he can to get that lifestyle behind him. And throughout the movie you learn of his exploits earlier and earlier battles and uh, when it comes to fruition and the way he's able to unleash, you see that he had it right there the entire time, his ability to go right back into the warrior way. And I think David knows that reality. I just picture him on a horse. I don't know how, you, I picture this little tiny person up on a hill, insignificant, just throwing pebbles, and David at any minute could just reach up and crush him easily, but he doesn't. Why? Well, because David, as he says in verse 11, has bigger fish to fry. He says this Behold, my own son seeks my life. Like, like Abishai, everyone else. Do you all know what's going on right now? Like, my child, whom I love, whom I would die for, is betraying me. How much, when he says, How much more this Benjaminite, Benjaminite, he's saying, How much. How insignificant is this? This has nothing. This this criticism is useless. It it means nothing to me. And for us, I think that what we have to learn from that is, why do we take criticism so close to home if we have such a grand story about our lives? If you are a Christian, here's what's true about you. The God of the universe has rescued you, has renamed you, has come to you and said, you are mine. And, and the enemy, Satan, is saying, you are now in the crosshairs, I'm coming for you. And so then a person in the road drives by and, and, and makes a gesture or, or just kind of pulls in front of you a little too slow and you feel criticized, you feel just crushed, Do you, you know, these little moments in life where, where this, this criticism happens, someone says a word to you, it's an email, and you come undone, you have to ask yourself, why am I missing the bigger story? Why am I not plugging into that? What am I getting caught up in? Um, and I want to turn your attention to the quote on the front of the worship guide by Tozer, and he helps us understand what's going on, where he says this, the labor of self-love is a heavy one, indeed. Think for, your, think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightly of you. As long as you set yourself up as a little God to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer a front to your idol. How then, can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of a friend and enemy will never let the mind have rest. Is that you? How do you handle criticism? Briefly, I'm going to make a few notes on criticism. One, uh, oftentimes it's it's in the present moment. There's a person in your life now who for whatever reason repeatedly criticizes you. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a boss, a teacher. That's one type of criticism. But I want to draw your attention to two more types. One is criticism from your story. I mean, again, I opened up with my story, but when you think about your life, there are voices, even from people who may no longer be alive, that offer you criticism, that try to tell you who you are, that try to rename you. Are you aware of those shimmy eyes in your life. And finally, you may be your worst critic. I know I'm mine. <clears throat> I mean, I could almost just say, no matter what you say, it's, it's nothing compared to what I tell myself. Do you criticize yourself? Do you talk to yourself? Do you say things to yourself that point out flaws and ways you want to fix yourself? We start off by saying that one of the first ways we can handle this is by going back to the gospel, by knowing who we are. David knew who he was. And he knew that he was the king, and he knew that he had God's heart, and he knew that he could take Absalom, but yet he was aware of the larger story, which helped him not immediately go and crush Shimei. But secondly, because of David's understanding of the gospel he was able to find a kernel of truth in the criticism. That's like the hardest thing. It's hard enough to not be totally undone when a critic comes after you, but even harder is to hear that kernel of truth. I want to tell you the criticisms that Shimei tells David. If you look at verse six, he's throwing stones, and then he says in verse seven, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And then in verse 8, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. The writer of, the, of first and 2 Samuel goes out of his way to prove beyond a shadow of any doubt that David was absolutely blameless in how he dealt with Saul. Two times he could have killed Saul when it would have been completely okay. Saul was trying to kill him and he doesn't. Saul dies at the hands of the Philistines. Saul does not die because of anything David did, but yet the criticism is couched from someone who is from Saul's house with this lie. It's a total lie. But this man, Shimei, is smart and evil, and he has one other wrinkle, you worthless man. Okay, that's getting closer to home, isn't it? Because maybe I am worthless. Maybe that part is true. He's getting at his conscience. He gets in his heart. He's like, maybe you your own son wants your throne, and look at you on the road out of Jerusalem, the very city you founded. You worthless man. But David didn't pick up on that part either. I think the part David heard was this, you man of blood. I think David was fully aware as he's leaving the city, flanked, by his mighty men, but here he goes again, his gift, the thing he's great at is killing people. And that's, what, that's what's going to define his kingdom. And that was weighing heavy on him. And when you look at verse um, 11, verse 12, excuse me, it says, it says this. David's explaining the reason why he's not going to take out Shimei and have his head cut off. He says, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Now, if you have, I don't know if you have your Bible open, but other ways that can be read is uh, maybe the Lord will look on my affliction. And then at least two commentators I looked at favored another reading, the Lord uh, consider or look upon my iniquity. David is able to say, there's a kernel of truth in this critique. I am to blame on a a level. I, in my sin against Bathsheba, there is this curse and there is this kernel of truth. Wow. Can you get to that place where there's uh, the ability to say, that's not true and that's not true. But when you said this, even just internally, yeah, that rings true to me. Uh, Doug and I were talking through this passage this week and he had this quote and he found it and sent it to me. I'm gonna read, it's a book. It's Matthew Henry on meekness. And here's what he says. Those who find themselves wronged and aggrieved think they may have leave to speak. In other words, people who've been wrong think I should get to defend myself. I'm free because you're wrong. should may I? But he goes on, but it is better to be silent than to speak amiss and make work for repentance. In other words, it's better to, Hold your words in instead of like sin and then have to repent of your sin, of of your words. And then he quotes this common proverb that I don't think I knew and none of you knew, but that Doug knew. So go to Doug. When thou art the hammer, knock thy fill, but when thou art the anvil, lie thou still. David was the anvil. And when we receive criticism, oftentimes we are the anvil. And what that proverb is teaching is sometimes just stay quiet. Receive it. The gospel frees you to do that. You don't have to defend yourself immediately. Now, just as a side note, I don't think David's life was in any danger. So I'm not here encouraging you to be putting yourself in harm's way. I'm talking about verbal criticism, right? Maybe a pebble or two, but not a stone. Are you able to lie still? Are you able to accept it and lay with it? Why is that so hard for you? Why is it so hard to be the anvil? The answer is because we think our identity is at stake with every criticism. And yet the opportunity is there To take this in, Um, Matthew Henry actually quotes Ambrose saying this, I have known many sin by speaking, scarcely one by continuing silent. So I'm just going to admonish us to work on that, myself first and foremost. Uh, You all can come this week with all the criticisms you want, and I'll practice right before your very eyes um, by not reading the emails. No. I would encourage you this week. I would encourage you today to be thinking about the criticisms and about your natural responses, right? And how quickly you go to defend yourself and to begin to think about what David did here and what you would like to see your life look like. Remember, we already talked about how Shimei is tiny because of the big story. Also, because of David's understanding of the gospel, he's able to listen to that kernel of truth in the cursing. But the last thing we're going to look at is he has hope for deliverance. In verse 12, he continues. He says, It may be that the Lord would look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. He's longing for deliverance. And the passage ends fittingly. And the king, verse 14, and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. I think this passage is a beautiful metaphor. Of the gospel. David recognizes in light of what Absalom is doing, in light of the criticism coming his way from so many different people, he can remain silent, he can weather the storm, and he can long for his deliverance to come from the true king. Um, How many of you have wondered where Jesus is in this story? If you've been here for long, you kind of know where is Jesus in this passage? How does this reflect Christ? And I think for mo- many of you, not all of you, will think automatically where it takes us. And I want to just point out this place in Mark 15. Jesus is before Pilate. And Mark tells us, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away. And they delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges have they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. And both Matthew and Mark record this view of Pontius Pilate. So that Pilate was amazed. Now it takes a lot to amaze someone like Pontius Pilate. And Jesus, even though Pilate doesn't believe anything about him being true, just his conduct in that moment, in just those few moments, with all the accusations, all the pebbles, all the words, all the cursing, all the lies, and Jesus was able to remain silent. Was, it amazed Pontius Pilate. And that's our hope. That Jesus was able to remain silent. Why? Because he knew who he was. And if you were Jesus in that moment, as hard as it would be, if you had a full sense of who you were, the God of the universe, the God that created everything, the God that created those very people, and you knew that you were sinless, and you knew you were going to the cross, what good would it do you to start defending yourself? It would just empty the moment, wouldn't it? And it's because of his knowledge of who he is and his knowledge of their sin that he was able to rewrite the method of dealing with criticism right there for the rest of time. And that's our challenge. Our challenge is that the gospel would flow in such a way that we would begin to rewrite how we handle criticism in our lives. Again, in, the, in our real time and place that we have right now, from our own story and from our inner, in our inner selves. Where does the conflict come from? i sure it comes from all three. Um, I wanna just, as an aside, Make this kind of two-minute plea to you. Uh, if you agree with any of this, and you agree with what I'm saying, you, there's work for you to do. We're going through sunship on Sunday nights, and at the end of every lesson, there's homework, which that word just drives me crazy. Anyone else? Yeah. I remember in college, I'd have friends who would say they're studying. I'm like, for what? And they just meant they were reading the books that they're supposed to read or something. What are you studying for? What am I missing? I hate, I hate those words. That's me. Um, some of you are like, that's my bread and butter. Leave it alone. Here's your homework. You have to go into, first of all, I hope we will all agree, we need to be spending time with our Lord. The Lord, as before Pontius Pilate, is your Lord. And we spend time with him through the means of grace. And private devotions are critical where we pour our heart out. And one of the things we can begin to pour out is, Lord, help me, and you pick any point of criticism where you defended yourself, and you plop it down, and you say, will you please help me know here how I could have responded based on the gospel? Because if you just kind of take this sermon and think, that sounds kind of interesting, I'll try that out, and wait for that next criticism, you're dead. It's going backward through repentance and exploring these places and looking at them closely and saying, Lord, here's an area where I need help. So here's my, a, quick, a quick story that comes from my life where I think this has happened a little bit. Um, I found in my office a certificate with uh, the Bulldog, and it said Sequoia Middle School, same school where Emma and I went. And it was the end of my sixth grade. This, I don't think I've told this story before. I checked in with my wife to make sure. Uh, it was one of those, here's, you know, here's what you did well certificates. Go to the seventh grade, right? And mine said, here was my award. My award for my sixth grade year, I won this award. The Perpetual Mouth Award. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> but here's what I'm wondering. I hope you'll understand I hated that thing. Like, I, that really bought, it, it's true, kernel of truth, maybe even a huge... Boulder of truth, but I hate that truth. Why did I save that stupid certificate? Like it's on why would I move from place to place and pull that out and set it up on the wall? I still don't have I'm still working on that part. So recently I saw it freshly. I read it closely. I'm like, I'm gonna burn that. I'm gonna set that on fire. And so uh because I procrastinate, I didn't do it right away. And then one day my wife and I were upstairs, and I'm like, hey, Emily, look, I want to show you this thing. I just, I'm going to burn this, and I read it to her, and she looked at it, and she looked at me and said, no, we're going to keep that. No, she didn't boss me around. She said, I think you should keep that. She said, God has redeemed that mouth. What that man tried to curse you with, God has used for his glory. What are the curses that have been placed on you that need to be renamed? What are those places that you've accepted, truths that aren't true, where Jesus wants to come in and go, let's rewrite that. Let me tell you the truth about you. Are you able to do that through repentance, through going to Jesus, through, through prayer, asking him to help you see that? The only way it can happen is if you'll go toward those places of pain, those stories, those moments those situations, and bring them before the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we have you as a Savior, the only person who could have justly defended themselves. There was no kernel of truth, and yet you still remain silent. Lord, I know there are times where we need to rightly contend with falsehood, but Lord, most of the time, When criticism comes our way, we need to run to you. We need to run to you so that we're not hurt. We need to run to you so that we can be rebuilt. And we need to run to you so that we can rename the lies. Holy Spirit, will you help us this morning draw closer to you and have an active faith that can handle criticism. Amen.